0: Hey, this is Candice Pringle, lead pastor of Effie Church, and this is our podcast.
1: The couch potato. It's a great sermon series, isn't it? Like, maybe we should get everyone couches. Instead of the blue chairs, just like 300 couches. Candace, we're doing that. I don't, I don't know if we'll do that. I, I take offense to this sermon series because in my nature, who I am, like, you know how our, our culture is saying you can identify it as whatever you want? In my nature, I am a couch potato. It's just, it's, it's who I am. You don't, I, that, so like, like, I love sitting on a couch all day Saturday, and I never, does any, maybe you guys, are, maybe I'm the weird one. I don't sit on a couch. Like, couches aren't made for sitting. Couches are made for laying down. Like, that's how you use a couch. If you're not parallel to the couch, you must have guests over. Because I just, I I get home, I sleep on the couch, throw on some Netflix, I've got my phone, like, my thumb muscles. I swear I'd be a thumb wrestling champion from all the scrolling I do. That's just who I am on my day off. Like maybe you're different on your day off, you're like working, you're building, you're getting, in my nature, I'm a couch potato. But I was thinking about that term this week, couch potato. How offensive is that? I mean, not to me, that's, that's who I am, but to a potato. Like that's offensive. Like who here loves potatoes? Where, where are my Irish people at here, up in here? Like the potato, the mighty potato, the humble potato. The potato can be anything. Like, name another root that's like, I can do anything I want with that. I could boil it, hash it, put it in a stew. Like, like, potatoes are amazing. Like, breakfast, you got tater tots, hash browns, breakfast potatoes. You've got potato pancakes. That's just breakfast that you can do that. Lunch, french fries, McDonald's french fries, America's favorite french fries. Who's Yeah, yeah, you like them? You're wrong because Chick-fil-A exists. Come on, some Chick-fil-A waffle fries with the Chick-fil-A sauce. Like, it's amazing stuff. And like, I'm gonna confess something to you right now. I know that Chick-fil-A sauce makes me sick to my stomach a little bit. It just doesn't settle well, and I don't care. I eat two packets every time I go. I go there twice a month, and I just destroy my body because, you know, it's the Lord's chicken. But french fries, you can have french fries. You can have chips. And, And the greatest of all chips, the Pringle. We love our Pringle family around here. And once you pop, can't stop. And, and potatoes, we call, them, we call them chips. In the UK, maybe you'd call them crisps. I think that's a stupid name. I don't know why. They, it's actually probably a better name. They crisp, but they don't chip. Whatever. It's stupid. Like, we've got potato chips. We've got french fries. We've, we, you know another type of french fry? Any Canadians here? I don't know why there would be, but Canadians. What, they have something called poutine. Have You ever had poutine? It's french fries with brown gravy and cheese curds. Talk about a heavy meal. Like, that's heavy. Actually, growing up, I had, there was one of the local uh, burger places called them disco fries. And they were just poutine. But you can't put poutine on a menu in New Jersey. People laugh at you. So you, then you've got, you've got corned beef hash, basically potatoes. You've got mashed potatoes and all the variations of mashed potatoes, cheesy mashed potatoes, extra butter mashed potatoes, uh, mashed potatoes and gravy, like, it, like Thanksgiving food, sweet potatoes. Come on. Like, this is, this is what we're talking about. Potatoes can be anything. As a matter of fact, it's hot summer day. You're at a picnic. What do you have? Potato salad. It's a cold winter's day. You're trying to warm up. You go inside. What do you have? German potato soup. Like, like, the potato can be anything. Long, hard day of work, you get home, you need to let off some stress. Take that potato, ferment it, you got vodka. Like, the potato has unlimited potential. And we use that tuber to call people lazy. Couch potato. And maybe we call people couch potatoes because when we look at somebody just... Rotting on the couch, just sitting there not moving, we recognize the unrealized potential of the individual. Think of all the things you could be capable of, but you just sit there and rot. What a wasted potato. And you know the other thing about potatoes? Have you ever, like, you bought a big bag of potatoes? Why do they sell them in such big bags? I mean, they last, but they don't last forever. And and like you've ever had a big bag of potatoes, you use like half the bag of potatoes, and then you leave the bag in the counter and then like you forget about them, maybe the back of the pantry. Have you have you ever smelled rotting potato? It is the worst smell. Like, like curdled milk, it's kind of bad. Rotting potato, it just smells like like smelling salts. Like you smell that smell and you're like, oh, okay. Oh. Something's bad. It's, it's painful because when you leave a potato to sit, the unrealized potential of that perfect food. You know, you can survive on just the diet of potatoes. Science has proven this. And then scientists started to argue, yeah, it's technically possible, but it wouldn't work. An individual survived for one year on nothing but potatoes and vitamins. It's a, it a tough year, I think. Like he couldn't even add butter to the potatoes. It's just heated up potatoes. That's it. And you can survive on that. That's how amazing the humble potato is. And when we leave it on the shelf to rot, what a loss of potential. That's what this series is really all about. In our home groups the other day, we were talking, is is the term couch potato Christian an oxymoron? Or is it possible to be a Christian and a couch potato? Is it possible and and there were good points on both sides, like, well, yeah, because all that's required to be a Christian is to uh, believe Jesus died on the cross, confess him as Lord, and believe that, that he is Lord. That's what the Bible says. Confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, and you are saved. Yeah, but in a lot of other places, it says some other things. That's like, that, like, gets the title Christian, but, but if you stay on the couch, can you really be a Christian, or, like, do you need to actually live out your faith? And And today, I want to look at a story Jesus told to actually approve His authority. It was was a story where the intention, I want to get to the heart of the passage, is to actually prove that He has the authority to be who He says He is. But we can draw multiple lessons from it. As a matter of fact, He says a different lesson from it than that. But we'll get to that in a second. We're going to go to Matthew 21, verses 28 through 31. And it starts with my favorite word in all of Scripture, but... (laughs) And whenever you see but, however, therefore in the Bible, you need to go before it and understand why it says but because otherwise you don't understand the full picture of the sentence. And when we, when we look at the passage before it, Jesus is arguing with some Pharisees. Some Pharisees are mad about what he's been doing and they're like, hey, who gave you the right? They don't actually say that. They say, by what authority do you do these things? By what authority do you preach? By whose authority do you heal? Who gave you the right? See, we are the Pharisees and we are allowed to do these things because we have the authority of this guy and this guy and this guy. And we... and they're like, who gave you the authority, Jesus? And then Jesus says, well, who do you think gave John the authority? And they didn't know what to say or how to answer him because they were worried and they were scared of man and they didn't want to say the wrong thing. So they refused to answer Jesus. And Jesus says, well, then I won't answer you either because I come in the same authority as John and you refuse to recognize it. And then he said, but what do you think about this? So he, he answers their question, he challenges their preconceived notions, and then he continues. And he says, okay, I've already shut you up, but what do you think about this? A man with two sons told the older boy, son, go out and work in the vineyard today. The son answered, no, I won't go. But later he changed his mind and he went anyway. Then the father told the other son, you go. And he said, yes, sir, I will. But he didn't go. I want to illustrate this for you. This is why I have this beautiful couch up here. Sorry, those of you, whatever. Um, I want to demonstrate for you that there's two sons. Father walks in, and he, he's like a standard, imagine this is a modern retelling, all right? Dad comes home, uh, it's lunchtime, and he, he's just, he walks in, and he sees his sons sitting on the couch, feet up, playing Xbox, middle of the day. He's like, what's going on? Get to work. Go out and work in the vineyard. Go out and work in the vineyard. And they're both sitting there. They're being real lazy, like real, real lazy. They're, like the one son's drooling a little bit. And the, and the dad's like, like, what's going on? And, and he goes to his first son. He says, go work in the vineyard. The son's like, I can't pause right now, dad. No. And he just says no right away. No, I won't go. Can't do it right now. And then he immediately looks at the other and he says, fine, you do it. You get to work. And the other one's like, I can't believe you just said that. You can't say no to dad. Yes, sir. I know what to do. Brownie points. That's what happens. You see, the first son, he's the oldest. And anyone here the oldest in your family? You know, the firstborn, the I get everything I want? Yeah, yeah, I see you. Listen, I was the firstborn. I understand. We, we, we got the birthright. We're going we're gonna to be handed the inheritance. Maybe not in our culture and society, but back then, by being the firstborn son, he was guaranteed. He was going to get the family farm. He was going to receive all the blessings. His, he was his dad's favorite. So his dad walks in and he says, nah, I'm not doing it. Because he knew no matter what, his father loved him and would forgive him. He knew it. So he just instantly, I don't feel like it, dad. No. The other one, he's the, little, he's the younger son. He, he's got the need to prove himself. And he, he looks at his brother. He's like, how could you say no to dad, man? Yes, sir. But then the son who was older he knew his father pretty well, actually. He'd worked with him a little longer, and, and he, he, it didn't sit right with him. He didn't just say no and then move on. As he sat there, he's like, "Why? Why? Did I, you know what? I'm going to go get to work. You coming? The other one's like, oh, you set down the controller. My turn. And he starts playing the video games. He doesn't go back to work. He doesn't do what he said he would do. And then Jesus explains it in verse uh, 31. Which of these two obeyed his father? They replied, the first. Then Jesus explained his meaning. I tell you the truth, corrupt tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of heaven before you do. Jesus is speaking to the religious elite, those who, who understand, who, who've, been, who've been like living this out, who, who have all the right answers. And he says, listen, there were horribly sinful people who immediately said no, who have now come back to God. And you, you always said yes, but now you're going away from God. We need to take this lesson very seriously. Because if we think we know If we're sure and sure so we just sit down and rest, will we miss what God is actually saying to us? Are we so focused on our comfortable situation as the son of God, I know who I am, I don't have to worry about it, I can do whatever I want, that we're saying no to him? Or are we trying to prove ourselves to him so we say yes, but then we don't show up? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I always say yes to God. Yeah, but do you always do what you say yes to? We need to be careful because the Pharisees were not careful. And he tells them, corrupt tax collectors will get into heaven before you. It's an amazing message. And, and if you only take the message of Jesus, only take the words of Jesus here this morning, you'll have gotten enough because this is a powerful message and, and the Bible speaks for itself. But I found a few concepts I want to cover uh, for the rest of my uh, two hours here today. And It'll only be 30 minutes. You guys know that. 40 minutes. 45? We'll see. What I want to cover here today is just a few points that I see from the, the characters in the story. And we're going to start with the father. And I want to read to you his first thing in verse 28 one more time. But what do you think about this? A man with two, boy, two sons told the other boy, son, go out and work in the vineyard today. What does the father do when he walks in? He tells his kids to get to work. We are called to work. And not just the older son. He then looks at the younger son. You go too. He calls everyone to work. This is is who God is, actually. And it's not just Jesus in the New Testament who said, get to work, go make disciples, go into all the world, spread the news, get to work. It wasn't just Jesus who said this. As a matter of fact, let's go to the very first instructions that God had to Adam and Eve. In Genesis 1 verse 28. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Rain over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and all the animals that scurry on the ground. The very first thing that God does to Adam and Eve is he blesses them with a job. Get to work. We're called to work. No one is called to, to be a lazy potato. We have potential, and we're supposed to do things. And he, he so spells it out that he actually gives us an order of operations. The very first instructions he has is to be fruitful. We need to be fruitful. We need to have fruitful faith. What do we know about producing fruit? Producing fruit requires a few things, right? A plant that produces fruit. One, it's got roots. It's being watered. It's got nutrition. It's got sunlight. It's, it's got everything it needs to grow. You cannot produce fruit. You cannot be fruitful in your life unless you are growing. You must be growing. You are being fruitful. An agrarian society, a farmer's culture would have understand that when someone tells them to be fruitful, they're saying grow. You need to grow. Be healthy. Be producing. You have to be growing. Anyone who studies like physical health, like bodybuilders or crossfitters, individuals like that, they understand that the minute that you strive to maintain, you are falling. Everything in our world is doing one of two things. It is growing or it is dying. We are growing or we are dying. Are you growing? You are called to grow. You are called to be fruitful how do we do this in our Christian walk? How are we fruitful? How do we get rooted and established in God? We have to dig ourselves down deep into his word. You know, the, the best part of the potato isn't the plant it produces. Did you know that certain potatoes can actually produce fruit? The potato itself isn't a fruit. It's, it's actually a tuber, a vegetable, a, a, a root. But certain potatoes can produce fruit under the right circumstances. They can build a big, strong, healthy root, and then produce fruit. And then the farmer digs them up. They're covered in dirt. He cleans them off, gets the dirt off that potato, and then he can turn it into something beautiful, like a Chick-fil-A waffle fry. We have to dig ourselves down deep into God's word, and then we have to let him clean us. Yeah, ha- we have to let him grow us, to make us healthy. We have to be fed by his word, we have to be watered by his presence in prayer. We have to be set on his sunlight by living lives in the light. We need to grow, to be fruitful. Because if we're not being fruitful, if we're not growing, we are dying. Jesus told many stories about my father goes through the vineyard and any branch that doesn't produce fruit is cut away and thrown into the fire. What happens if we are not being fruitful? If we are not growing in God, what happens? We get thrown away. Because he won't allow us to choke out the life of the other plants. He then told them, be fruitful and multiply. How do we multiply? I I could think of one way, you know, one plus one equals two. In my family, it equaled three. Like, that's one of the ways we can multiply. And I th- certainly think that God was expressing that desire to Adam and Eve. There were only two of them. And if there weren't more of them, we'd have no more people. But I also think he's talking about something else. We need to multiply our mentality, multiply mentally. We need to grow mentally so as to replicate our thoughts, Jesus' thoughts, God's thoughts to others. I struggle with this one. I don't mind being fruitful and growing that way, prayer life, reading, these type of things. I, that's pretty standard stuff for me. I like that type of growth. But then we need to grow mentally. This one's a little tougher for me um, in school. I never needed to study. I was that kid everyone hated. Like, I just got A's on tests because tests are easy. Sorry. I can't write papers if that evens it out. I cannot write an essay to save my life. Um, my first thing I would do in any college class, I'd look at the syllabus. I would do the math of what grade I could get if I didn't hand in the final paper. And if it was above a, uh, like a C plus or a B, I just didn't do that paper. And I'd get you know straight A's on the test and I'd pass college class. C's get degrees. So, so I, would, I would not write the papers. But it was because I, I just naturally was good at it. Until one day, I was in a theology class, and uh, there was a 4.0 student in that class with me, real good friends of mine. He's like, hey, we're going to study together. I'm like, I don't need to study. I'll pass the test. He's like, no, no, no. This is theology. You need this stuff. It's not, this isn't your math class. This isn't English. You need this stuff. We're studying together. I'm not going to let you skate on this. And we met for weeks studying for that test. Like, I have never been overprepared for something since my driver's test. Like I, like, I knew it inside and out. He would, like, start the word, and I'd finish the sentence. Like, memorized it, studied it. And the difference it made, I still retain that information to this day. Ex nihilo, out of nothing. Like, I just, I remember that all the time, because that was, like, one of the things we covered. Like, when we study, when we work our mind We are able to then teach that information. Have you ever tried to teach something you barely understand? Like someone's like, hey, how do you do that? You're like, oh, um, you like, oh man, I can't do it unless I'm doing it. It's like, I don't, it's like trying to teach a kid to tie their shoes. We we just do it. It's like, I don't know, just tie it. What do you right over left, then loop, swoop, and pull. Like, until you really know something, you've studied it, you've you've worked it out. You've taken the notes, you've studied the scripture, you've wrestled with the idea. You can't teach it to others. And if we're supposed to multiply ourselves, we have to know the information well enough to teach it to others. If you've ever wondered, if you truly know the scripture, try to teach someone it. Try to teach someone it. If, if you can't, go back to the first step, start growing. Then study so you can multiply mentally so that you can give the information to those who need it. A lot of young Christians, they want to jump straight to evangelism. I want to tell people about Jesus. That's great, you should. Please, go for it. Tell them about your story, though. Don't don't worry about the deeper theological things because you're going to get tripped up and you're going to struggle because you haven't had enough time to wrestle with those yet. Your, Your main job, if you've just recently met Jesus here at Freedom Valley Church, if you just prayed a prayer of salvation, here's what your job is. Be fruitful. Get fruitful, read God's word, grow in faith, study the scriptures until you've got them down well enough that then you can share them, explain them, and teach them. You shouldn't be doing that day one out the gate. You got to grow in it, grow into it. You got to get to work for it. Then he gives us other instructions, fill the earth, reign over it. We need to spread throughout the earth. This is why we do missions at Freedom Valley Church. That's why we have three opportunities coming up in 2020. There's uh, Philly, then there's the Dominican, and then there's Africa. Africa. They're going to be from May, summer, and August, uh, September, May, summer, and September. And, And consider going on one of those trips to carry the message, because we need to reign over the whole earth. We need to spread throughout the earth. Then we need to take care of God's creation. Sometimes individuals get these backwards. We think our first call is to take care of creation, and we forget that we have to be fruitful. But if you're just taking care of creation, just go join Greenpeace. You do great work. But if you want to be a Christian, start by being fruitful, then multiply your mentality, then spread the gospel throughout the earth, then you take care of God's creation. He gave us an order. He called us to work. We cannot ignore it. Very beginning of scripture, it's there. Then the father, he walks in, he sees his sons being lazy, not following the first command. He says, get to work. Then the next lesson we learn is when we look at the story of the first son in verse 29. The son answered, no, I won't go. No, I won't go. I think this was a gut reaction, an initial response. He's being lazy. He's just resting. He's had a hard day. You don't know what's going on with my friends at school, and I had so much homework. And he just says no, because he allowed his emotions to determine his response. That's what I honestly think. I think he let his feelings dictate what he said. And here's the problem with feelings are foolish. Our feelings are so foolish. Have you ever gone shopping when you're grocery shopping when you're hungry? Who here's done that? It's a mistake. Like, like you're pushing around the cart and you're throwing in stuff. You're like, ooh, they got chocolate Pop-Tarts and s'mores Pop-Tarts? <laughs> Like, we, we've had some Pop-Tart arguments in our house about too many Pop-Tarts once. Because I was hungry. You buy all this food, you want all this food, and then you go home, you eat a meal, and you go, oh, no, I spent the rent on the groceries, I blew the budget for the month. We're going to have to figure this out. You, you should not shop hungry. You shouldn't drive angry. That's another thing. Anyone ever driven angry? It happens. And our emotions, our feelings, are foolish. And if we make life-changing decisions in emotional moments, we will live and learn to regret them. We cannot let our emotions determine our behavior. Because I make lazy decisions when I'm tired. Tired? I'm a little tired. I'm a little tired right now. I think, I think I'll just procrastinate a little bit. I'll just skip that work. I'll rest. And we end up rotting on the couch. When we let our feelings determine our behavior, we end up with a lazy and sinful response like the first son. See, the first son had faith, but his faith wasn't exercised. His feelings were first exercised. And when we exercise feelings first, we're actually demonstrating a theological concept known as original sin. Here's the theological concept of original sin. Adam and Eve sinned. We come from Adam and Eve. We inherited the first sin everyone is born sinful. This is an important theology for us to recognize because as parents, if you've ever held a perfect little baby, like you've held your child and you've looked in their eyes that they can't even open because they're all squinty and covered in goop and they put that Vaseline on them in the hospital and you're like, you're messing with my kid. It's so heart-wrenching. But you look at them and they're perfect. They're so perfect. But the truth is they're not. We're looking at them with imperfect eyes. They were born into our sin. My son, my daughter, born into my sin, born at war with God. There's another theological concept. Did you know you were born at war with God? It's important we recognize that. My theology professor, he laid that out for us one day, and I raised my hand like the very intelligent college student I was, and I said, "Nah." uh <laughs> It was a very theological argument, like the first son. Nope. And, and he explained, well, maybe you weren't outwardly antagonistic towards God, but maybe you were in a Cold War with him, because all of us are born at war with God. And he said, you know what the Cold War is, right? And I went, "Yeah, yeah, of course I do. You know, the, the aggravation between two countries, escalating threats, constantly trying to insert their own will, not allowing one power to be dominant over the other because I know what's best and I know what's best and you are at a cold war with God. And we only come to be at peace with God, Hebrew word shalom, we only come to peace with God when we recognize his authority over us and submit ourselves underneath him. Because when we are at war with God, we are saying, I feel like I should get what I want and I matter and it's me. I feel I want. It's feeling based. It's all based on feelings. And when, we allow, <laughs> when we allow our feelings to determine our behavior, you know what we're doing? We're saying, I'm going to choose right now over then. I want right now. I don't care about later. Right now matters. Later doesn't. Screw later. Don't care. Don't want I don't, to. I don't care about it. And our foolish feeling pursuit has led to a cultivation in our culture of a cer- certain style of sermon. It, a few weeks ago, I was sitting down and I was like, what, what is it that individuals actually want from a sermon, because there's one thing we learn from the entertainment industry, always give the people what they want. What is it individuals want from a sermon? If I'm preparing the message, what should I do? And I wrote down three words that I honestly feel the average you know, churchgoer in America wants from the message. One, they wanna be engaged. They want to be engaged. They want people, they, they want the person communicating to connect with them, uh, but, but from, you know, engagement, from like a distance. Like eye contact, making sure that I'm recognizing you. If I'm losing you, I make loud noises so that you wake up. These type things engage an audience. Like that level of engagement. That's the first thing they want. The second thing they want is to be entertained. Uh, when Marie was giving her testimony, she said, Jason would come up and do handstands and juggle rocks and be silly. I would jump over people and stuff. And by the end of the week, being the entertainer for the, the whole group got a little tiring. And we'd be at like the second or third event and they're having trouble drawing a crowd and then they'll be like, Jason, where's Jason? And, like, people from other groups I don't even know, like, translators are like, Jason needs to come up and do something. And I'd have a push-up contest with locals or something, whatever. It always felt like they were like, dance, monkey, dance, monkey, dance. And I'd be like, okay, let's dance. And and people want to be entertained. This isn't, you know, school. I don't want to have to just sit and take notes and listen. I'm not. I graduated high school. I don't want to do that. Entertain me. Third thing they want... They want to be encouraged. I want to leave feeling good. Like when people ask, this is, this is a weird question we ask. Have you ever thought about how weird this question is? How was church? You, you realize we are the church? <laughs> If someone says, how was church? They should be saying, like, how are you? Because you are the church. How was church? It was great. I met so many people that I haven't seen all week. And just getting to connect with my family means the world to me. But what they're actually asking is, were you, were you encouraged? Do you feel better? Was it? Did it make you feel good? Did you leave happy? You feel like you could take on the world? Listen, if you want that, watch a TED Talk. They'll make you happy. They can offer that. But that's what we want from our messages. We wanna be engaged, entertained, and encouraged. And if we got all those things, we feel like, you check the boxes, I feel good, I'm gonna move on. But then I looked at the, the sermon style of Jesus. What, what was it that he presented? How did he want to communicate? How did he talk to the masses? And I came away with three words. First, he connected with them. This is, sounds similar to engagement, but engagement is something you can do on social media just by like making sure you're responding and you're connect. Connection is when you go to somebody, you go to where they are. You meet them where they are. You connect with them over what's going on. And there's, there's more than just, I see you. It's, I'm with you. He went to where they were. He connected with them. He didn't wait for them to come with him, and he acknowledged them. They weren't just acknowledged. They were met where they were. So he connected to them. then he convicted them. He convicted them. See, we entertain a lot of times in our services He convicted with his sermons. Convicted. He acknowledged their sins. He called them out on their sins. He said, this is what you've done, but this is what you should do. This is who you are, but this is who you should be. You see your sin. You're convicted of it. He constantly convicts. The Holy Spirit convicts. Sometimes people will come up to a a preacher after a sermon, and they'll be like, I know you were talking about me, and that's not cool. And I'm like, I didn't even know that you had that issue. Sounds like the Holy Spirit was convicting you not me. Now, you can be mad at me, or you can acknowledge the fact that that's what Jesus does. He convicts us and calls us to the third thing. He challenged them to change. He challenged them to change. He never finished a message without saying, now go and sin no more. He constantly said, so don't live the same way. Don't live as if you're unwise. Live as if you're wise. Make the good decision. You know what to do. Now go into all the world and do it. He challenged them. Because what we do is we base our decisions on our emotions. And we have something called emotional manipulation. Have you ever been emotionally manipulated. Have you ever emotionally manipulated yourself? Remember when I talked about, you know, buying food when you're hungry? You're letting your emotions manipulate your decisions. That's what it is. You know, Hallmark movies with the sappy, sad music at the end and they they make you feel things. They're using emotions to manipulate you into thinking that horrible movie is actually good. It's emotional manipulation. And unfortunately, the evangelical church in, in recent history has utilized emotional manipulation because it feels like it's working. And we're letting our feelings dictate our faith. And we use emotional manipulation, the right music and the right tone. And, and maybe you're thinking, I feel like you've done that. Well, my goal is to challenge you, get you to acknowledge the choice, and then have your emotions lead you into making a commitment that you will keep. You see, when we allow our feelings to, to change us quickly, we're missing out on having our lives change slowly. Feelings change quickly, and they come and they go, but life change happens slowly. If you let you, only your emotions guide you, you're going to be tossed and turned back and forth. But if you commit your life to faith, you're going to be like the first son who had faith. His, feeling, his feelings were instantaneous. No, not going to do it. But his faith slowly changed him. He acknowledged where he went wrong, and he repented of it. See, feelings say no. Faith says, okay, I know what's right, and I'm going to do it. Faith will change our life. It takes time. A lot of times we want the message to change us right now. We want the sermon to make everything better, make all the problems go away, to make me feel like I, I've, I've succeeded because I responded. All I had to do was raise my hand, right? Now I'm good. The problem is solved. But it will only change you if you meditate it on Monday. You meditate on the message on Monday. Then you talk about it to people on Tuesday. Then you walk it out on Wednesday. Then you test it on Thursday. Then you you finish it up on Friday, and then you, you just sit there on Saturday, reveling in the victory you've walked in. You can't do it in a moment. Feelings happen in a moment. Faith is exercised over time. And when we live a life of faith, we're living differently, and we're living for later. Are you living for right now? Because that's all your emotions. You want to feel good? You can feel good real quick. The world has figured out lots of creative ways to feel good. But if you want to live a life for later, it says, I've changed my mind. I recognized I was wrong. I was at war with God, and therefore, I'm going to do what he told me to do. I will get to work. I will grow. I will multiply. I will build. I will spread. I will invest. I will study. I will meditate on his words. Because if the Father told me to get to work, I'm going to get to work. might not feel like it, but I'm going to fix my faith on it. It's requiring daily meditation, repentance, getting back to work. And that's the faith of the first son. Yes, he sinned, but he meditated on it and he responded. Then we can learn from the second son in verse 30. Second son, then the father told the other son, you go. And he said, yes, sir, I will. But he didn't. He signed up to serve and he didn't show up. He said he would do it and then he fell short. He, he neglected what he had responded to in the first place. This is the problem with emotional manipulation. It causes people to make public declarations of faith that they never considered the cost of and then they walk away as easily because they feel different in the moment. They're able to convince themselves, that was just how I felt, that was just then, things are different now. But if you make a real convincing conviction and challenge yourself to change... You can live a new life. You see, that second son, he knew what to say. He had the right words, the best words. He knew exactly what he needed to say. The, the, the father comes in. He sees the first son say the wrong thing. He's like, you idiot. I know how to get him off our backs. Yes, sir, I will. Boom, he's gone. Now we can go back to playing games. And if we're playing games with our faith, we're not living up to our potential. The right words might be easy to say. It's like singing the right things in worship, saying the right things in time. We have individuals who come from a church background and they they feel like they have all the right things to say, but Jesus made it clear that the religious people didn't get it. It was the tax collectors and the prostitutes. They're the ones who responded. They might not have had the right words, but they had the right actions. Saying yes, sir, is a quick response, but quick response without careful consideration causes condemnation. Quick response without careful consideration will lead to condemnation. You will end up hating yourself for a decision you made without considering the cost. This is easily modeled. Your buddy comes up to you. He's like, he's like hey, man, what is, what's up? What are you up to on Friday? I don't know, nothing. He's like, good, I could use some help moving. Can you help me move? Yeah, yeah yes. <clears throat> and then you're stuck. you got to help him move. Anyone who I've ever helped move, I really did want to help you move. But anyone else who asks me, I'm, I'm going to be honest now, I, would, I will help you because I love you. But it's not what I want to do. My feelings don't want to do it. If you've ever said, I'd love to help you move. And then like the next day, you're like, what was I thinking? Now I got to carry boxes up flight of stairs. I got to pivot couch around. It's not fun. But we instantly, we just say yes without considering the cost. And then, then the brother came to the moment where he said yes. And now it's time to get to work. And he's like, I don't want to do it. And we look for excuses and ways out. And we might have said the right words, but because we didn't consider the cost, we end up not following through on our faith. This is the problem. This is this is a problem with the the salvation prayer. We we pray the salvation prayer. I believe in the salvation prayer. The Bible is clear. It says, believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord. Confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. There is something powerful and important about the confession of our mouth. We need to speak it out. That's why we have a salvation prayer at the end of our services often. That's why we lead people in it. There's a little card that says the prayer to pray we hand out. It's powerful, but it can't be the only thing. We have to then tell other people. We have to then change our habits. We have to then repent, become a new person. Because if we stay the same, what changed? That seems like an obvious sentence, right? If we stay the same, what changed? If Jesus comes into our life, everything should change. Radical, real life change because our actions matter. What we say matters, yes, but what we do reveals our hearts. What we do reveals our hearts. We must be doers of the truth. You know, one of the accusations against the modern church that's so painful to hear but surprisingly true, it's just full of hypocrites. The the Greek word for actor was a hypocrite, someone who says someone else's words, someone who says something but doesn't actually do it in their life. We can't be like that. Hypocrisy is the contradiction between our words and actions. If we say, yes, I will, Father, and then we don't do it, we are being hypocrites, and we need to become doers. The second son had sin in his heart. Yes, he said the right things, but he didn't live him out. Therefore, it was sin. The King Saul in the Old Testament, he was told, don't sacrifice until the, the prophet gets there. Prophet is late. He is days late. Saul doesn't know what to do. He's getting nervous. And certainly, there's nothing wrong with sacrificing to God. So he sacrifices to God before the prophet arrives. And then the prophet arrives, and he says, how could you have done such an evil thing? And he's like, I just wanted to sacrifice to God. And he says, Doesn't the Lord value obedience over sacrifice? We need to do what he says, not what we want. Doing what he says costs something, it costs our comfort. I said this before, I'll say it again. It costs our comfort. The cross is uncomfortable. Jesus told us to carry it. He didn't say to carry our couch, carry our cross. He convicts us, so therefore we should be convicted. We need to be willing to do what he says. Verse 30 and 31. Then the father said to the son, uh, 31, which of these two obeyed his father? They replied, the first. Then Jesus explained his meaning. I tell you the truth, corrupt tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you do. For John the Baptist came and showed you the right way to live, but you didn't believe him. Shut up, Siri. And you didn't believe him. And even when you saw this happening, you refused to believe him and repent of your sins. In Africa, one of the groups we worked with um, is called Teen Challenge. And Teen Challenge is a program that's active in America. It helps men and women find freedom from addiction. In Africa, they have tremendous success uh, helping people who have serious sin in their lives find freedom in Christ. And if you have ever met A former gang leader, a former prostitute, a former murderer, a former traitor, a former whatever, who has been saved by the grace of God, repented of their sins, and become a new person. You have never seen anything like that. It is the greatest faith I have ever seen. These individuals can't stop smiling. They have infectious faith that spreads because Jesus said to whom much is forgiven, much is required. And they know how far they've been forgiven. So many of us were like, yeah, I said yes to a prayer when I was a kid. And and so I have Jesus. No, this is the biggest thing. This is eternity. This is the gospel. This is God come down. He forgave us. And then he walks in the room and he sees us sitting on the couch. And he's like, don't you get it? Get to work. There's something to do. Get off the couch. And we sit on the couch and we say we're good because we prayed a prayer. I've received Jesus into my heart, don't you understand? I'm a Christian and you can't tell me otherwise because I can't lose my salvation. And I wanna be very careful. I am not suggesting that if you are not working hard enough, you won't get into heaven. That is not what this is about. We don't believe in a works-based gospel here. We believe that it's only through Jesus Christ's grace that you are saved, but he did say these words. Matthew seven twenty-one: not everyone who calls out to me Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father will enter. Those are Jesus' words. You can be like the second son and have the right words and say, Lord, Lord. That verse goes on and he says, depart from me. I never knew you. I never knew you. To whom much is forgiven, much is required. A lot of times we think, we didn't do that much wrong. I didn't, I wasn't a gang leader. I'm not a rapist. I'm not a murderer. I'm not like those horrible people. Do you understand how much you've been forgiven of? Have you repented fully? Have you acknowledged your own sin? I'm a horrible human being. One of the hardest things is when someone comes up to me and they're like, you're such a man of God, we're so blessed. You don't even know the grace of God. If I'm righteous, it is not by my own actions, but by His grace and forgiveness. In my nature, I just want to sit on the couch. In my nature, I, I want to just be left alone. I just want to be comfortable. I just want to just give me my space. My feelings tell me to stay here. My feelings say I've done enough. I, I responded, I prayed, I'm saved. No one can take that from me, but if I am not willing to get off the couch and to go and follow his words, to study it, to read it, to grow, to become fruitful, to multiply my mentality, to teach his word to others, to spread it, to do what he says, if I'm not willing to do that, you know what I'm doing? I am spitting on the cross saying that I deserve that. It is not my works that save me. It's my works that are in response to my salvation. If He forgave me so much, how on earth could I sit back and say, I'm good? It's spitting in the face of something that I could never earn, I could never pay for. We need to be doers of God's word, we need to get off the couch. We need to acknowledge our forgiveness. We need to repent constantly. We might make mistakes like that first son, but our faith should drive us to forgiveness of of everyone around us and requesting forgiveness of God daily, reading his word and becoming a new creation. We need to find ways to get involved and invested in our community. Listen, church should not be a place you go once a week. It should be a community of people you connect with. You should be looking for people to talk to. It isn't easy, but it's worth it. You should get involved. We had a couple of things in the card. I just wanted to mention real quick. There's the Epic Weekend Invitation. Multiply. Invite people. There's there's this card about Gettysburg Cares, getting involved, helping with the homelessness issue in our communities, where... Churches all around Adams County open up their doors for two weeks a year, and you can get involved being a host, staying the night in the church, keeping these people safe, providing a shelter for individuals throughout the winter. We as a church always volunteer two weeks. Maybe you'd consider getting involved. Fill out the card. It's not too late to hand it off at the serve desk. As a church, you know, we we go to a lot of conferences where they tell us how to communicate on stage, the types of things to say for recruitment. One of the things they say is, never say you need. Provide opportunity. And they're right. Because God will always provide all our needs. But I'm going to say something right now. Our church is in need of greeters. Our church is in need of kids workers. Our church is in need of people who will give up their own comfort so that others can connect. They're going to grow mentally throughout the week. They're going to grow deeply. They're going to do the things necessary. And then they'll say, yes, Lord, I'll serve. I've been served by your son and I have come to serve. To get off the couch. Because... A potato left on the shelf rots. A Christian left on the shelf rots. If you live your Christianity on the couch, you will rot from the inside out, begin to smell like death and decay, and look no different from the world that you were saved from. The Bible says in another part of Scripture that some will enter heaven as if barely escaping the flames. There was a picture painted for me when I was young that has always stuck with me. Can you imagine if you walk through heaven and you smell like smoke because you barely escaped the flames? Have you ever had the smell of a campfire on your clothes? Have you ever tried to get that off? You gotta wash it like three or four times. You'll walk up to people and be like, you smell like a campfire. Now imagine for all eternity, you're someone who made it, but only to just escape the flames and carry the smoke with you. Is it theoretically possible To be a Christian, to sit on the couch and get into heaven. It's possible, I suppose. I'm not God. I won't tell you that it's 100% never gonna happen, but I will tell you is it worth the risk? Is it worth it? Or should you see the greatness of God and say, I have to live up to what He's done for me? I have to try to save others. I have to do what my Father asked me to do. I've got to get to work. You can't earn your salvation, but you can serve your Savior. Will you serve? Heavenly Father, I thank you for each response. The response for salvation, the responses to serve. And I ask that we would be compelled to change. Holy Spirit, you have the power to convict us throughout the week. Make us meditate on this on Monday. Don't let us forget this by Friday. That we would live a life changed. Living a life that lasts faith that is fixed on the future because without you we rot but we have the unlimited potential and power of the Holy Spirit so God make us into what you need us to be for your glory and honor that we would see your kingdom come here on earth that this church would be your church that this house would be your house that we would live lives changed because we will not cannot sit on the couch anymore. I pray for the unrealized potential here in this room to see your world changed. Thank you for calling us, for loving us, for forgiving us, and for your grace for our future. So God, unlock the potential in these people. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today. If you made a decision to follow Jesus, please let us know by going to fv.church slash IMN. And remember to download our app for more content and helpful links. So something I've been saying in all the rest of the services is that getting off the couch sucks. It's nice and comfy and comfortable, and you don't want to get up. So you can just sit here and relax, and if you're not careful, if you don't think about it, you can sit there and then one day wake up old, and the next day you wake up in front of God. And God knows the opportunities that he's given to you, and you don't want to stand there and have him show you what he placed in front of you because you're going to have nothing to show for it. One of the most frustrating things in Scripture is that the Pharisees that Jesus talks to all the time, they weren't just confident of their own salvation, they were positive of it. And if we aren't careful, we can be the ones who sit up on the couch, wake up in heaven, confident of our own salvation. We'll be the ones who call out, Lord, Lord, but sit there and wake up in heaven. The Pharisees aren't there. And again, workspace salvation isn't what we preach. Theoretically, you can make it in, but don't risk it, as he said. The Bible also says you'll know them by their fruits. Don't be the one who calls Lord, Lord, and sits on the couch and doesn't have any fruit to show for it when he wakes up in front of God. God, thank you so much. That your love comes in a variety of ways that it comes in joy and happiness knowing that you've given us the grace to continue to move on despite the disgusting things that i do that we do i sit on the couch so often god help us and teach us to get up we need to learn to get past ourselves jesus and Your Holy Spirit is the only way to do it. Your Holy Spirit bears fruits, and the fruits are love, joy, peace, and patience, kindness, goodness, and self-control, God. Teach us self-control to move past ourselves, to get off the couch, and to do the work that you've called us to, God, because Christians are called to work because Christ works. And we are supposed to be images of him, God. Allow us to go out of this place, God. Lift us up and let us to be mirrors of Christ to an unbelieving world. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. See you guys next week.